Hello and welcome to a new episode of SIS Masters Podcast. I'm Arnaud Drija, founder of Sport Innovation Society, and I interview for you some of the best experts in the global sports industry. Today I welcome Neil Duffy, chief executive and founder of At 17 Sport, a company created to help brands, properties, and athletes bring their purpose to life while also delivering positive business outcomes. Neil is widely recognized as a thought leader in purpose, sponsorship, marketing, and sustainability. Driven by a desire to help businesses succeed while being purpose-driven, he shares with us today his wide experience and vision of the industry. And before we start this episode, many thanks to Sportsmanias, presenting partner of SIS Masters Podcast. Sportsmanias is a creative digital agency recognized as the industry leader in animated emojis and augmented reality effects, connecting partners and brands with fans' conversations on every major mobile messaging and social media platform. Sportsmanias emojis and AR effects have driven over 15 billion views to date. 15 billion. Feel free to check out sportsmanias.com. Hi, Neil. How are you today? Where in the world are you? Hello, Arno. I'm in Paris today. Paris, France, not Paris, USA. Not bad, not bad. Enjoying it? Yeah, it's great. I've been here for, sure, seven, eight months now, and um, I love the energy here, and I love the city, and I love the people, and uh, very happy. Glad to hear that. Not that common. <laughs> So very glad. I'm very happy to welcome you today SIS Masters podcast. We've known each other one day in San Francisco, I think it was four years ago, having a first great chat on the pier. Uh, and that's the first time you challenged me because the first thing you asked me when we spoke about the Global Sports Week project was what's the purpose of it? And I said, it sets a tone of what you're doing every day. <laughs> you remember that time? I do remember. I remember it well. Yeah, and it was, it was, um, I was inspired, to be honest, to be talking to somebody doing what you were doing, who was even aware of what purpose was, to be honest, because it's not a topic that has been at the top of the agenda in sport um, until recently. Um, and so I was excited by the fact that there was a bunch of people who wanted to stage a conference that would have purpose as one of its key outcomes. Um, okay. So well done for that. And you've been supporting since with 17 Sport, and thank you. And when we met, 17 Sport was not existing yet. Uh, so that's, it's not long ago. Uh, 17 Sport is quite a new adventure. So today we're going to speak about 17 Sport. We're going to speak about purpose, purpose-led sport. But before getting into that, I'd, lo I'd love our audience to understand more about your journey, what you've done prior to creating 17 Sport and becoming a French lover. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, I've, I've been around for a while. I've uh, been in the industry for sure, it's almost 30 years now. I started in um, South Africa, where I started a traditional sports marketing business back, at the, uh, back, back in 1990. Just at the time that South Africa was coming out of its isolation period when Nelson Mandela was a free man for the first time in however many years. Um, and, you know, there was a, a renewed excitement and energy in the country about what could be possible. And sport played a huge part in all of that. Um, so anyway, I started the business. We grew. We were very successful. Right, right place at the right time. And our idea at that stage was around the idea of um, – adding some degree of accountability into sport. Because what I'd seen was that uh, back then, sport was still very much the purvey of the chairman. Or, um, and companies often sponsored sport because the chairman had some kind of personal uh, link to sport. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was to, as I say, create some kind of accountability and start to um, treat sport as a business tool rather than as something else. Um, and so started to focus on how do we use sport Uh, as a business driver, and how do we measure the return and return on investment that sponsors get out of sport? So that's where it all started. Um, the business grew, was successful. Uh, we ended up um, getting a knock on the door one day from the Interpublic Group, uh, who were in the process of creating Octagon. Um, so this is in 1990, 1998, I think it was. 
Um, and um, so we were ready to to uh, sprout wings and fly at that stage because we had had such great success in South Africa and were looking to be part of an international group. So uh, we joined the Octagon family um, and uh, became Octagon South Africa um, and continued doing the work that we were doing. I then started to uh, play more and more of a role in Octagon's business internationally. Uh, and one thing led to another, and I ended up living in Brussels as president of Octagon Europe, Middle East Africa, uh, with responsibility for the group in the region. Um, so that was 2005 when I moved to Brussels, uh, with a remit to try and build one Octagon in the region. Um, and for those listeners that don't know, Octagon is a kind of multi-faceted sports marketing group with a strong presence in in uh, the marketing side of the business, the TV side of the business, and in the athlete side of the business. Um, and the business had been built through acquisition. So um, I don't know how many companies, but 20, 20 plus something businesses acquired over a very short space of time, put together under the Octagon umbrella. And so the mandate I was given was to, uh, in Europe, Middle East Africa, was to build one Octagon in the region. Um, did that for a couple of years and then decided... Um, to move on, I, I got itchy feet, I guess, um, because I realized that I'm um, there's more entrepreneur in me than there is corporate guy. Um, and being the president of the region, I was a corporate guy and um, not spending enough time with my clients or with my team or with uh, doing the work. Uh, and I'd also realized that, started to see back then that um, what we now call purpose was starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that Octagon was ready for that conversation at that time. Still very traditional in its in its approach. And so I decided to go on and do my next thing and um, had never worked on the property side of the business. So I decided to focus on that and uh, ended up working with the America's Cup as the chief marketing, commercial and sustainability officer for that event that was happening in San Francisco. Um, and so the three together, marketing, yeah. commercial and sustainability. Correct. Huh. Pretty, pretty unique, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and but it, it was perfect because you need you needed to have those three components, or you needed to have influence over those three areas of the business in order to be able to drive the change and the transformation that I wanted to see happen. So you created the job position in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of happened by evolution, to be honest. I kind of I started off as the chief sustainability guy, then the marketing guy left and I got his role, and then the commercial guy left and I got his role. And it was, but it was really convenient because it having you know the intersection of those three things is where where the transformation is able to take place. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were able to show that, you know, by leading with purpose. So this is America's Cup back in 2013. You know, the event, the the organizers um or the hosts of the event had had agreed to deliver a carbon uh, neutral and zero waste event. So um, the America's Cup event authority in order to had signed a contract with the city of, of San Francisco that in order to stage the event there, they would commit to delivering a zero waste and carbon neutral event. And so that gave us the foundational elements of building a strategy around something bigger than just um, awareness and hospitality. Uh, which is, you know, mainly what's what's sports about. Uh -huh. um, and also the fact that it was, you know, an ocean event. Um, and we realized that there was a real interest and opportunity in building and using this event as a platform to solve a problem around ocean health. Putting all those bits and pieces together became the sort of cornerstone of our commercial program. Um, and so, yeah, so it was a, a great opportunity to basically prove a model which showed that it's possible to do good while you do well in sport doing um, good while making business exactly exactly and right. you know the prevailing model then and still today for most of sport is that you do well and then you give a little bit away by doing good so you have your main business and then maybe you have a foundation that you does a little bit of good or maybe you have a csr plan that does a little bit of good you know, more recently Maybe you have some sustainability people that are worrying about how you deliver the event from a sustainability perspective. But for very few businesses in sport, even today, they don't lead with purpose. They don't exist to solve a problem. Um, yeah. And so that's what we tried to start doing with America's Cup. And we didn't get it 100% right, but it was, yeah. a, it was a first step in that, that direction. Yeah. Um, I then got to, after that all finished, I got a chance to work on a project called the One World Play Project. Um, crazy guy is actually a musician, invented a... Was, was deeply touched by a trip to Africa where he saw kids playing soccer, football with a Coke can 
and it touched him very deeply and he's made it his life mission to make it possible for every kid in the world to play with real football. Uh, but the trouble is it, for, traditional footballs don't survive most conditions in the world. You know, if you're a, if you're living in a township where there is no grass and the field that you play on is made with rocks and stones and barbed wire, if you have a normal football, it's going to last half an hour before it pops and then you don't have anything to repair it with. So one, once the America's Cup was over, was looking for my next thing to do and had the opportunity to work with an amazing, amazing initiative called the One World Play Project. Yeah. Um, was all built around this idea that play is a, is a vital part of every person's existence. But that not everybody gets the opportunity to play because, you know, if they're living in Africa, for example, and they their playground is a dusty field with rocks and stones and barbed wire, normal footballs, for example, don't survive, you know, very long in that environment. So an inventor by the name of Tim Jonigan invented the world's first almost indestructible soccer ball, never goes flat, doesn't need a pump. And because of that, it can survive the harshest conditions in the world. And Tim asked me to come and help him to basically um, – take his purpose and build a business model around it. Nice. Um, and so that's what I did. And we ended up putting a huge partnership together with uh, Manchester United and Chevrolet at the time that Chevrolet became the shirt sponsor for Man United. Remember that huge deal? Yep. yep. Uh, $7 million a year or whatever it was. Um, and the One World Play project became the purpose overlay um, for that for that partnership. And as a consequence of that, um, we made it possible for 30 million kids around the world to play with a real football um, and to enjoy the benefits that come from, from play. Um, so that was great. Um, and sl- slowly building up the arsenal of, of case studies, I guess, yeah, uh, to show that you know doing good and doing well as a philosophy can work in sport. Um, and also one was the Super Bowl, right? Yeah, the next one was Super Bowl 50. Hmm. Um, and really driven by a commercial imperative or requirement again, there was San Francisco had the opportunity to host Super Bowl 50. Uh, they just uh, completed their new stadium, the first um, stadium of its kind in the world, the most sustainable stadium at that stage in the world. Um, and uh, But for a whole lot of reasons that I won't go into because it'll take up the full hour of our, of our conversation today, there was a there was a commercial imperative to look to do something different because the traditional model would not work, but basically because the rights that were available or afforded by the NFL to the host committee were insufficient to raise the money that was required in order to meet those obligations, which kind of created, gave me an excuse or a rationale to put forward a different way of doing things. And um, together with Keith Bruce, who was the CEO of the host committee, uh, we conceived this concept of um, delivering the world's first net positive Super Bowl, which is a Super Bowl that would, uh, give more than it took from the local community um, and the f- and focus on using the event as a platform to solve a problem. And the problem that we that we rallied around was um, one that identified that uh, a third of the population of the Bay Area technically live in poverty, which is an astounding statistic considering that's the home of all these big technology companies. Yeah. And that about 60% of those people are under under the age of 18 and really have very little hope of getting ahead in life because of their circumstance. So how could we use Super Bowl as a platform to close the opportunity gap for young people and help them to get ahead in life? Um, and so we built the whole value proposition around that. Um, um, and together with a gentleman by the name of Pat Gallagher, who was the chief commercial officer for Super Bowl 50, built a commercial program that showed that um, 25% of every sponsorship dollar that we raised would go back to support that purpose. 25%. 25%, yeah. Um, and that was a really brave move because that meant we needed to raise an additional 25% of money over and above the amount of money we needed to pay to the NFL to host the event, which is already a significant amount of money. But we did it. Um, and we raised um, over $13 million for over 150 local nonprofits working with young people in the Bay Area. Um, so that was huge. Uh, it became the central organizing idea for everything that we did. So all our engagement with the fans was around this topic. Um, so all of our communication for 12 months was focused on the purpose piece, not on the football piece. Um, you know, we did, in order to do that, we decided we, in order to be credible, we needed to deliver a sustainable event. So we focused from an operational perspective on uh, energy, water, waste, and food, and we delivered the most sustainable Super Bowl in history. Um, and 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 
Um, and really, because we, you know, by leading with purpose, we were able to build a value proposition that made Super Bowl 50 relevant to the local community. And Is it a model that has been used after? Um, components of it have been used. Uh -huh. uh, you know, what, one of one of the shortcomings I think of the Super Bowl hosting model is that um, it moves to a different city every year, mm -hmm. and every host every city has its own host committee, and every city wants to do it its own way, mm -hmm. based on their local circumstances. And you know, some of them don't need to raise money because the funding is provided by government funding, mm -hmm. so there's less imperative for them to be creative. Um, so, so no, so we still hold the honor of being the most giving Super Bowl in history, um, and I believe the most sustainable, sustainably delivered Super Bowl in history. Although that's a very subjective, um, yes, measure. And but it's a kind, of, it's a kind of record you want to be broken every time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, so that's the background on it. So it's a long winding story, but it's um, you know I think at the end of the day. I would summarize my career as a book of two chapters. The first is very much in the traditional sports marketing space. The second half is more about how do we use the power of sport to solve important social and environmental problems while still delivering the commercial outcomes that it needs to deliver. Yeah. Uh, because it's not about philanthropy. This is not about hugging trees and giving money away. This is about being smart. And it's about embracing a move that's underway in society generally, which is driven by largely young people who expect organizations to stand for something more than profits these days um, and want to reward and have a relationship with those organizations that do. So it's just smart business. In order to be relevant to the people you want to sell your stuff to, you need to uh, operate in a certain way. Uh, and so that's the key message. And for the we're going to see after in the conversation, but... One thing sometimes is what people expect, and also is what marketers expect or sports organizations expect. And making the match is not always that simple. But before going back to, before deep diving into the house of making it happen, how did you end up creating 70 Sport with Fabien Paget, who I say hi to, uh, very, very nice person? How did you end up creating 17 Sport? Yeah, it's a it's a funny story. We have LinkedIn to thank. Um, so Fabian reached out to me on LinkedIn one day. He'd seen work that I was doing and um, said, "Let's have a chat." So we had a conversation, and uh, we really we both realized very early on that we were two people that were very aligned from a values perspective. We were both very aligned in terms of our our view of sport as an industry and the fact that we didn't believe that it was contributing towards building a sustainable future at the level that it should be, given its kind of superpowers. Yeah. Um, and that we could get more done together than we were getting done on our in our in our individual capacities. Um, and so after dating each other for 18 months, um, we said, well, let's let's do this. And it was a really a conviction of, you know, a, a commitment to to start a journey together to, you know, I often joke two guys in a suitcase. Because I was living in San Francisco, he was living in Paris, um, and two guys in a suitcase on a mission to, you know, humbly try and change sport. Yeah, uh, into some positive force. And 17 sports, the name itself is is quite significant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. We spent forever trying to come up with a name, um, and eventually we we landed on 17 sport and. Um, The reason why is because we believe that the problems that the world faces are too big for any one organization or individual to solve on their own. Yeah. Um, and that collaboration is required in order for that to happen. Um, and conveniently, the sustainable development goals, um, which are, for those of you that, of your listeners that don't know, a set of goals that were set up by the United Nations to help uh, governments and corporations to focus on the world's most pressing issues. There are 17 of them. Goal 17 is around partnerships. Yeah. Um, and um, that kind of sits at the heart of our DNA at 17 Sport is the concept of collaboration and partnership. So that's why we're called 17 Sport. So you describe 17 Sport as an impact company operating at the intersection of sports, business, and purpose. Can you help us understand the kind of unique value proposition? Because in the markets, there's many traditional sports business or sports marketing agencies, but your value proposition is very 
uh, unique and demanding at the same time for you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's the other thing we decided is the world doesn't need another sports marketing agency. There are more than enough of them around. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to do something, build something different that was was really going to be very outcome focused. And, and again, at the expense of sounding like a stuck record, use the power of sport to solve the world's toughest challenges. And so our value proposition is that we help our, to bring our partners' organizational purpose to life internally within their own organizations or externally amongst their customers uh, through sport uh, by solving problems. Um, and uh, it's taken us three years to be able to articulate that. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, we started off by saying, and it still is our internal purpose. Our internal purpose as an organization is to transform the business of sport into a force for good. That's why we as a team exist. The way that we do that is by helping our partners to express their purpose internally and externally by solving the world's toughest challenges through sport. Um, And um, for purpose-driven organizations, that's a really interesting value proposition. Um, There are more and more brands, properties, athletes, even nonprofits working in sport who are looking to use their influence resources network um, to solve problems in the world. Um, they they of themselves are purpose-driven organizations. So we are a very good fit for those types of organizations. We're also a B Corp. So I don't know how many of your listeners know about yeah. B Corp. B Corp is, a, is an organization that gives a certification for companies who commit to operate in a responsible way. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're a B Corp. In fact, the first B Corp in sport. Um, there are about 6,000 B Corps in the world right now from some of the biggest multinationals like Danone and Espresso, all the way down to little one-man shops, one-person shops. Um, And, um, you know, so there are more and more organizations who are trying to behave in a purposeful way. And so we're a good fit for them because we understand that world. And with respect, I don't believe that um, enough organizations operating in sport understand that language, certainly on the agency side. No. Um, and again, this is not about CSR. This is not about philanthropy. This is not about paying lip service or or providing piecemeal support to do good initiatives. It's about leading with with doing good. Leading uh, with so doing good and on- solving solving problems that matter and making these problems a core of the organization. Is that of right? The organization or of of the sponsorship. So you know, yeah. in the case, so it doesn't have to be. So it can be you know a sponsorship program can have purpose at its core. Why does the sponsorship program exist? It exists to solve a problem and in the process build greater relevance, greater uh, loyalty um, with the stakeholders that that organize, the sponsor wants to, to have a relationship with. Yeah. Um, I think it would be great if you can share some cases. And, and you have also some very interesting figures on the power of purpose because you're mentioning solving problems uh, that matter to the world, but that matter not when we say to the world and it's a very abstract, but it matters to people. It matters to young generations. So the impact of this, of solving problems has a positive business impact. Can you, can you share some examples of things you've done and the, the tangible impact it has on a brand, for example? Sure. So we work with, um, uh, even if I say so myself, we've got an amazing um, amazing group of partners that we work with, um, the likes of Adidas, Sanofi, Formula E, doing some work with the NFL, um, and others. Uh, the one example, maybe I'll give you two examples. I know the first is um, one's a social, the other's an environmental um, focus. So for Adidas, uh, Adidas is organizational purposes to improve people's lives through sport. That's why they exist. Um, and they try to reflect that in everything that they do, recognizing that, yes, they have a you know a significant impact on the world given the nature of their product and, and the manufacturing process. But there are two parts to their focus. One is around people. One is around planet. Um, on the planet side, they're very focused on trying to reduce their, their impacts, um, you know, their environmental impacts from uh, looking at things like you know, circular design to all, all sorts of, of practical things that are reducing the amount of plastic in the, in the system, the amount of waste, um, that type of stuff. Our, our focus is on the people side of things, which is um, specifically focused around women and gender equity in sport. 
Um, and Adidas approached us and asked for some um, help to actually bring that commitment to life through sport because they, you know, their focus had been on the planet side and they, in, in Europe, we started off in Europe, they wanted to, to think about what they could do on, on the people side. And so, and, and specifically on the gender side. So we ended up developing a program for them called Breaking Barriers um, for Girls Through Sport. Uh, and as part of that, Adidas made a five-year commitment to um, directly work with the sports for good ecosystem to build its capacity to better serve girls and provide more girls with access to sport. Because mm -hmm. the insight here is that girls and women don't enjoy access to sport at the same level that boys do. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence to that, do not enjoy the same benefits. Because we all know that people that participate in sport enjoy better life outcomes in lots of different dimensions. Um, so, but because girls don't have the same access, um, that's not good for girls and women, yeah. but it's also not good for society because it means we have an yeah. underutilized, underutilized component of, um, society that's not contributing, um, at, at, at its maximum level. So, um, the program focused on the focus, the program focused on building, um, the capacity of the sport for good ecosystem. Over five years, there was a commitment to directly work with 15 uh, sport for good organizations to help them to better serve girls, uh, to celebrate 100 champions, local champions. You know, there's a saying that says you can't be what you can't see. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was to actually identify 100 local champions in the community who could become role models for other girls to get them involved in sport, uh, not just to sponsor the A-list athletes, but also to sponsor the community-level athletes yeah. that are role models. And then as, as a consequence of that, to directly improve the lives of 50,000 girls over that five-year period. So that's the work that we're doing. We're in halfway, almost halfway through year three um, of, that, of that project, year four of that project, actually. Um, and um, we've almost achieved all of those objectives already. Um, there's a huge focus to that. And to be honest, we didn't, we didn't, factored this in that when we started our focus was very external in other words in terms of changing brand perceptions towards the brand as a result of this um, but internally there's been a, a huge positive impact amongst uh, adidas employees and we now have a very robust um, volunteering program mm -hmm. a mentorship program um, where adidas employees are coming forward and actually have become an integral part of the program to support the delivery of it uh, acting as either mentors or volunteers for these organizations and for these young girls. And it's actually starting to drive a process internally um, on this topic of gender equity. So, so that's a good example. It's building a culture. Uh, beyond a program, it becomes a culture. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and it's oversubscribed now. That program is oversubscribed. There are more people who want to participate than we're able to actually um, accommodate. Um, and there's already a conversation started now around, well, what are we going to do for the next five years? Um, it's been so successful on, on many, many fronts. Uh, another part of that is working with the Adidas partner ecosystem. You know, they sponsor a lot of athletes, properties, events, things. And so we're now starting to also start to, which is the second part of the program, which is how do we start to affect change at an ecosystem level? So the, that's the direct intervention, the, um, Indirect intervention is around how do we change the conversation around gender equity at an ecosystem level, in other words, across the whole of sport. Yep. And here we're, we're working with Adidas and their influence that they have in the industry. They sponsor a lot of events, teams, leagues, athletes, and have a huge amount of influence. And so they're starting to use that influence now to start to uh, to start these conversations at the boardroom uh, in the organizations that they sponsor, uh, to start getting the organizations that they partner with to start paying attention to this topic uh, by supporting uh, women athletes at a different level to how they have in the past. Uh, also using those athletes as role models back into the system um, on the sport for good side. So, so yeah, so th that's the other part of this. And, and the conversation has already started now around, well, how do we grow this program after year five, uh, you know, with an ambition that's still to be formulated, but a very robust ambition around uh, building a more gender equal version of sport um so so that's you know that's an example i think of solving a problem so girls don't have access to sport at the same level that boys do as a result those individuals and in society is worse off um they we handled the full implementation of the program for them 
Uh, we do all the communication and storytelling around the program. Uh, and we're also measuring the impact of the program. Uh, so we're in the middle of that right now, measuring not only the value for the brand, but also the value for society. So what's the value of the social capital that's being created as a consequence of this intervention? Um, yeah, because a lot of times also... Some pretty interesting numbers. Yeah, interesting numbers. And the whole idea behind building uh, cases like that is making it a business case in some ways and and really understand the tangible benefits, uh, which is very challenging because everything that is done is quite new so it means new ways of measuring the impact. Yep. And obviously, I can't disclose that information because it's confidential yeah. information, internal information. But I can share with you that it is very positive and to the ex so much so to the extent that uh, you just want to do more, yeah. not less. And the challenge so, is how do you scale that to have a way bigger impact? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And you were mentioning also a case in the on the environment environmental. Sorry for not pronouncing that well that word. Yeah. <laughs> so, the environmental environmental part. I, so the other example I'd like to share with you has an environmental focus. Uh, we have partnered with Formula E, specifically the Formula E uh, championship event that happened for the first time ever in Sub-Saharan Africa in Cape Town just ten days ago. Yeah, um, and. Our role there was to help the local promoter build a um, purpose-led strategy for the event that could um, give it meaning and purpose beyond just a one-day event. Mm -hmm. uh, the event is too expensive to host in Africa for just the sake of hosting a, a sports event. Uh, and so where we ended up was that you know, one of the huge challenges facing South Africa right now is around energy security. Um, for example, in any given day at the moment, there could be six to eight hours that pass with no electricity, having huge impacts on every aspect of life, business, home life. I mean, you can imagine not having electricity for eight hours a day. Health. So um, so anyway, so where, where we ended up was that we would use this event as a platform to accelerate Africa's transition to the green economy. Mm. Um Africa, a lot of the energy problems stem from the fact that South Africa is very reliant on coal-based fossil fuels for its um, its power. Um, and not only does that have a really poor environmental footprint, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also not that efficient. Uh, and the, this, the system in South Africa is also breaking down and, and from a distribution perspective. So anyway, they're real, real issues. So it's a problem that needs to be solved. If it doesn't get solved, uh, there are immense um, social um implications yeah. so yep so the, so the event has become now the platform for to raise awareness and consciousness and action around the issue of energy security and the fact that there are solutions available and so once again to accelerate the transformation of africa's transition to the green economy was has become the purpose of the event uh the first thing we did was we built you know formula e in and of itself is already purpose-led so there's a very good fit from that perspective the next thing we did was to build out a layer of, of supplementary activity engagement uh, to engage with broader public uh, and with other stakeholders, including a uh, the Africa Green Economy Summit, which was an opportunity to bring together global capital together with African solutions. Uh, there was a three-day conference that happened leading up to the event. Uh, there was a fan experience, which was focused around um, exposing South Africans to uh, uh, e-solutions, e mainly around mobility. Um, and then we created a new nonprofit called Go Green Africa, uh, which uh, is intended to give this project life on a 365 days a year basis. And Go Green Africa is basically a shared mission of organizations coming together to innovate, to share best practice, to lead by example, um, to contribute towards the, the mission of, of the event. And, and uh, in the first year, we were, were successful in bringing um, a couple of big partners together, including Uber. Um, and it's quite interesting because Uber have made a commitment to be carbon neutral by 2040. Okay. And so they're using this event as a platform to transform their own business, oh, wow. um, which is interesting. ESCOM, who's the big utility provider in South Africa, who's causing all the problems right now, they came have come on board as a partner um, and, and various other organizations. The, the Western Cape government um, also came on board. So it's a multi-stakeholder uh, kind of approach. Uh, and our role in all of that is really to de 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 develop the strategy, 
uh, deliver the strategy, bring the commercial partners together to make it all viable from a financial perspective, um, and to keep the show on the road um, so that some people are focusing on delivering the event. Our focus is on using the event as a platform to solve this problem. Well, it's interesting so to a, see that the partner you've gathered some of part of the problems themselves and they want to solve it. Exactly, exactly. And again, it comes down to this concept of collaboration. Um, we get more done together than we can apart and, and let's get everybody around the table, both the solution providers and the people that are part of the problem, if you can. Hmm. So um, it started with awareness. So a lot of, and it will keep on, You will, I'm sure you will keep on building awareness, always need to be done. Collaboration to find solutions. Correct. And yeah. the next and then, step would be? Uh, and then engagement. So as part of this, the, the initial step was that the organizations that have joined Go Green Africa have made a, signed a pledge um, to do a number of things. And phase one was to launch this initiative as part of the race. And uh, the impact of having an electric motorsport event in a country that has eight hours a day with no electricity, you couldn't ask for a better, a better sure example case. of what's possible. Right? So if we, can, if we can deliver an international quality electric event, we can sort out our problems around electricity. Um, so phase one was to launch, and then phase two is now to engage the broader public. So uh, you know, we'll be inviting members of the public and other corporations within South Africa to come forward and join this shared mission to help solve this problem together. That's the next phase of all of this. Um, so the concept, the initiative is, and congrats for that, it's fantastic. Very pragmatical, entrepreneurial question. Where is the business for you? <laughs> Well, we get paid to provide a service. Okay. So, so the promoters in South Africa appointed us as their partners to develop their strategy and to deliver this program for them. So we get paid a fee for doing that. Um, and then we're also helping to bring commercial partners into the mix. And yep. so we get paid for that as well. So the, the business model I know is not different to the traditional business model. It's just the subject matter is different. <laughs> it's the, you know, it's the, it's the, the outcomes that we are delivering are different to what yeah. traditional sport is. And they are additive to what sport is delivering. So Formula E is still delivering a great spectacle. It's still providing its sponsors with reach through a global TV audience. It's still providing the great hospitality opportunities that it does. But in addition to that, it's solving a problem and in the process making it more itself more relevant to, in this case, the people of South Africa and to local companies in South Africa because it's addressing an issue that's that's very important to them. Mm. So it's built a totally symbiotic relationship. It's, you know, win-win-win all around. Yeah. Yeah. And that leads to the importance to of brands stepping in because it's part of the model to build uh, virtual circles is properties, brands, eventually public organizations and fans and media too amplify all that um so what have been your challenges in into trying to convince or working with brands and trying to engage them into solving problems i think our biggest challenge is dealing with the properties to be honest okay i think the properties of i think the majority of sports properties are still very stuck in the past um you know there's a there's a business model that there's a kind of cut and paste business model for sport that's worked for the last 50 years. Um, and I think everybody, the majority of people that are running sports still use that model. Um, so I think what needs to happen and what we're starting to see happen now with the more enlightened leaders in sport is that they are starting to recognize that in order for sport to remain relevant, it needs to also evolve and it also needs to develop a new business model for itself. Otherwise, it's not going to be relevant going forward. And what is this so, new business model you have in mind? It's the doing good while doing well piece. It's about doing good at putting good at the center of your business model as opposed to on the fringes. And it's about leading with it. Mm -hmm. So you know, the, the prevailing, you'll, you'll find that most, um, I use federations, for example, most federations will say that the reason they exist is to grow their sport. Yeah. So World Rugby, World Rugby, if you go to their website, they'll say our, our, our purpose is to grow the sport of rugby, is to get more kids playing rugby. And we will do that more recently, more and more of them are saying we'll do that in a responsible way. 
So we'll make sure that we have, you know, we'll make a commitment to be carbon neutral by 2050. We'll reduce, we'll have a waste program to reduce our waste. We'll do all those operational things to be, so that we deliver whatever it is that we do in a responsible way. But those things in of themselves are, are great and they need to happen. But I think, we think at 17 Sport, the magic happens. The real superpower of sport is when you use that platform to solve a problem in the world. And, you know, most in the, if I use that example of, of rugby again, most people don't care whether there are more people playing rugby or not. I mean, the amount of people in the world that are playing rugby is minuscule, right? Compared to the number of people in the world. So if the sport of rugby grows, that's nice for rugby, but it doesn't make the world a better place in and of itself. But a lot of people care about climate change and a lot of people care about social justice issues or injustices. And a lot of people care about these other challenges in the world. And so what we believe, it's about using that platform, that new business model is about using your platform to solve a problem because what that's going to do is it's going to make your property more relevant to the brands who want to reach the same people that you are watching your sport. And it's going to give them a reason to continue sponsoring you. Um, hey. And so that's the dynamic here. So that's where, where the brand interplay comes in here now, because we're seeing, I was, we do, I'm not going to name who they are, uh, but a major global sports property conversation with them the other day, they said to me, every single brand conversation we're having at the moment is being led with purpose. Wow. The brands want to know how are you using your sport? How can we partner with you to use your platform to solve a problem in the world? That's what brands want to do today. Okay. But a brand, a brand needs to be unique. Uh, when I say brand, it can be a sponsor as it can be a property. Then if you have all the properties wishing to solve a global problem, they're not going to be unique. Um, they, uh -huh. they just need to work out, they just need to work out what problem it is they want to solve. They don't all need to solve the same problem. Okay. Uh, you know, property A might say we're going to focus on biodiversity loss, uh -huh. and therefore they will be relevant to brands that care about biodiversity loss. You know, another major organ, another major football federation um, shared with me the other day that they've they've rejigged their whole commercial program now around wellness, and so they are actually going to be asking partners that they have that are not contributing towards that mission of making people healthier and and, and more well. They're going to ask, they're not going to renew their partnerships with them. And they're going to replace them with partners who do care about that. Okay. So that's what's going to happen on it. And it's going to be driven by the brands. And we're starting to see it happen already. So right now, the move is fans. We've seen the trend in the, in the last years. We've seen it during COVID around many topics. So it did impact the, the brands, the sponsors, because they understand the fans as they understand people, so they understand their needs and they want to match their needs. So it's moving now from the brand to the sports organizations. That's why you say we need to, in some ways, evangelize the sports organization to, to be stronger in that space. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'll never forget when COVID hit, short got, got shut down. Right? How long did it take for sport to get shut down when the NBA announced it was closing down and literally within weeks, the global sport was shut down, right? Yeah. And the headline was sport is not considered an essential service. Yeah. Therefore, we can't keep it open. Right. It's not a non it's a non-essential service. Yeah. Now that's a problem. If you're a non-essential service in society, that means that you're that you're not core to the success of society. Um, and so that's what sport, that's the biggest challenge that sport needs to address, in my view, is it needs to reinvent itself to become an essential service. And sport always was an essential service. It is an essential service, but professional sport has lost sight of that because the focus has become on entertainment, on selling tickets, on selling broadcast media rights, on selling hot dogs and merchandise. It hasn't been on how do you use sport superpower to, to you know, get people more active. If people are more active, there's less incidence of disease. If there's less incidence of disease, there's more productive society, as one example. Um, another example is bringing people together. Think about Rugby World Cup in 95 when Nelson Mandela used rugby yes. and that event to bring a nation together that three weeks together had three weeks previously had been killing each other. Yeah. 
that's an essential service. The Rugby World Cup in and of itself is not an essential. If the Rugby World Cup happens or not, the world is still going to be the same place. Yeah. What, what, what so would that, you say? That's the dynamic. Yeah. What would you say if I, if I say most sports organizations are afraid of change yeah. uh, because they're, they're, they just don't know what could happen? They're afraid of losing the traditional incomes they get by selling exposure and, you know, try, try, traditional packages, sponsorship packages with exposure, ticketing, uh, image rights, very traditional ones with no purpose at all. Um, and they're also afraid because they have absolutely no, uh, sometimes no case studies of how virtuous it can become. And so the, the perspective of eventually losing more than gaining does stop initiatives. Yeah, I, I don't believe it's a I don't believe it's a binary conversation. Is that the right way of saying it? I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. I think it's and. Yeah. So I don't believe sport needs to stop doing what it's doing. So carry on doing what you do with your entertainment and your the stuff, the traditional stuff that you because that's important. I mean, they, I'm not I'm not trying to diminish the value of sport from a from a cultural societal um, entertainment perspective. Sport's important. I love sport. I like I'm as much as anybody. I'm looking forward to. The game between France and England on the weekend, the rugby game. Yeah. Okay, I love it. But and that shouldn't stop. Um, what I'm suggesting is that we're looking for something more, or in addition to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But my point was is that we we both work with a lot of sports organization, and we see sometimes a lot of the struggles uh, to pass these messages and make them understand that it, it, it's going to become virtuous. It might be a difficult moment to pass to go through because it's a change, uh, but it's going to be virtuous on the mid and long term. Yeah. So, how do you convince them? What tools do you use to to convince them? Well, we still, you know, when I first started doing this work 15, 20 years ago, I didn't have any case studies. It was just a, it was a philosophical, um, academic conviction argument. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now we have the proof. So we have. If you gave me three hours, I'll give you 30 examples of purpose-led uh, sports properties or sports sponsorships that should give you enough confidence to at least try this out. Yeah. Um, the first movers like Formula E and Volvo Ocean Race, or now called the Ocean Race, and Forest Green Rovers and Oakland Roots and Angel City, and goes on. And it, the list is growing, um, which is great. Um, and the other thing is... Human nature, unfortunately, is such that it takes a crisis before people pay attention. So, you know, it's unfortunate that the war in Ukraine had to happen before UEFA realized that maybe it wasn't a good idea to have um, an, a Russian oil company as one of their sponsors. Yeah, People had been telling them before that happened that they should be thinking about doing things differently, but they didn't listen because they were scared. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so I think, I oh know it's about... You know, it's about paying attention to how the world is changing, listening to what your stakeholders are saying, ask your sponsors what do they want, what are they looking for, ask your fans what do they expect, ask your athletes what they expect, and then responding to that. Or you can just carry on doing things the way you've always done them until it stops working. Um, <laughs> But I think the message and what has to be underst understood more and more is, again, making good is making business. So it's going to be virtuous. It's yes or yes. Uh, and, and, and also, I know that the other thing as well, it's not just the, the examples are, that I reference are not just in sport. So when I first started talking about this, there weren't even examples in business where this, where this is the case. But there are literally study after study from Harvard Business Review to Ernst Young to Deloitte to all these people who have got studies out now that are empirically researched and validated that show that purpose-led organizations outperform traditional organizations um, by multiples. It's, it's, it's no longer up for debate. There's a reason that 6,000 companies have signed up to become B corporations. They're not doing it because they've got nothing better to do. They're doing it because they understand that it's good for business. Um, so the proof is there. What sport needs to, you know, I think sport is trailing business by five to 10 years in terms of its understanding of this topic and its adoption of this topic. And um, COVID helped to accelerate that a little bit. Yeah. But the next five to 10 years, there's going to be a, there's going to be a sea shift change in terms of expectations that brands have of the properties they sponsor.
And those that don't reinvent themselves and to remain relevant are going to become irrelevant. I have no doubt about it. Uh, we've seen it already. Um, and it's just a matter of time. Yeah, 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 totally agree with that. And you were mentioning that there are a lot of surveys uh, that showcase uh, the performance of the companies that are purpose late. Uh, yourself, you've built uh, with 17 Sport, you've built a report, Sport on Purpose. Quite an interesting, by the one, I invite everyone to check your webpage, 17sports.com, where you can find the report. Um, could you share with us some of the key findings, uh, maybe some surprise you or reinforced some of your convictions? Can But can you share some of the key findings you've got? Sure. I, I think the reason, you know, why did we do this survey? Because we wanted to validate all the stuff I've been talking about. Now we wanted to make sure that it wasn't, that there were some, some uh, that it, there were other people who agreed with us. So we spoke to over 100 uh, decision makers around the world from brands. Our focus was very much on, on the brand side of the house. Um, I think 17 countries altogether to try and understand um, how they are viewing purpose. Um, and there was, you know, over over a resounding uh, positive response that, um, you know, indicates that marketers today see that, you know, activating a brand sports sponsorship portfolio builds in a purposeful way, builds stronger brand affinity uh, than traditional than the traditional approach. For me, I think that was the key, the key finding. Um, and I think the other thing that also shot through, which was I was really pleased to see, was um, an, a recognition and an understanding that in order for this to work, you need to be totally authentic. In other words, you can't just talk about stuff. You've actually got to do it. So, you know, it's about story doing, not storytelling. Um, and that there is a commitment at brand level to do that. I mean, it, it's quite interesting in the case of going back to the example I gave earlier of Adidas. Adidas said to us in the first years, we don't want to talk about this project at all. We want you to get out there. We want you to build the program. We want to start making a difference before we actually start talking about it. And that's that's pretty pretty bold. Um, and that came out of the marketing department um, at Adidas, right? Because there's no, we don't want to be world champions at making announcements. We want to be world champions at actually making a difference. Um, and that's that's a kind of that's another theme that came through the survey um, very very strongly, um, which is great. I love um, that one. Story story doing instead of storytelling. Yeah. It's a very strong one because we see a lot of announcements from many brands. We're going to do this. We we made a partnership with this organization and we're going to do this before doing it and then flop disappears <laughs> and it's so sad in some ways and I, i'm sure people are not stupid uh and if at least core fans of brands they will realize and let's face it the future is shaped by visionary leaders right it's not it's not shaped by people who just do things the same way they've always been done mm -hmm. So there's an opportunity out there for the visionary leaders in sport to step up. And again, you don't have to do, this is not a replacement strategy. It's an, it's an evolution strategy. It's about taking what you already do and making it better and stronger and more relevant. Um, so yeah, so I would encourage people to go, go and take a look at that survey. You can download it at our website. As you said, it's www.17. So the number one, seven dash sport.com. Yep. Uh, and it's about 40, 50 pages long. There's some great stuff in there, some very actionable insights um, that you can work around. Um, another interesting thing I, that also came out that I that I think is very relevant was, was a recognition on the power of linear media to be a great platform for purpose-led storytelling. Linear media, you mean? So long form, it was long form. So, you know, so I, I think that's really interesting as well. Um, Think about opportunities where, you know, you can engage because, you know, your seven-second engagement with someone on Instagram or whatever provides you with limited opportunities, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, to really build deep engagement with your customers. But long-form content, you know, purpose and long-form content go really well with each other. Yeah. Um, it's about telling human interest stories. It's about showing how you've been able to change people's lives. Um 
and and we see from the work that we're doing, you know, with Adidas and Sanofi and Formula E and these people that your your level of engagement is much much deeper um, with purpose content. Um, and, and we see that long form content have a strong engagement. We've seen the famous case of obviously Formula One Drive to Survive that has has been a game changer uh, globally on the image of Formula One. There have been now tennis. PGA and a bunch of some of the sports. But all those contents are very linked to athletes uh, because the athletes are the core of the content. There are stories like backstage stories everyone wants to understand, wants to know, and they want to leave what the athletes leave. Uh, and I think in your report, there were some things that said that the athletes are the potential best ambassadors of change. I don't know if I phrase it well, but it, there's a connection between the importance of the athletes and long-term content and the ability to drive purpose-laid uh, programs. Yeah, it was actually teams and athletes. Um, so it was both groups. And I think the reason for that is that people tend to have a relationship with a team or an athlete that goes beyond the relationship with an event. Uh-huh. Um, having said that, I you know I'm a great believer in event marketing because I think you can control it a lot more. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I so yeah. So so that was you're right. That was one of the the things that came out of t- teams and athletes um, lend themselves very well to purpose activation. Um, and I and I, I think part of the reason for that is the authenticity piece, right? So again, the athlete, if the athlete is authentic about the issue they want to address. You know, if it's Serena Williams and she cares deeply about women's empowerment, then that's a great that's a great platform to activate around. Yeah. Um, if it's Forest Green Rovers who are trying to reinvent the way that you know football's relationship with the environment, then there are people who are passionate Forest Green Rovers fans who you can engage through that topic. Yeah. But I think you could do the same thing through events. I mean, you know, what we're seeing here with Paris twenty four is really interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, the commitment that they're making to purpose is. Is, is leading class. I also believe that events can be a very powerful platform to activate purposefully around. Yeah. Uh, examples like Paris 24, it's exemplary in terms of how it's leading with purpose. And again, going back to our example of Super Bowl 50, 90% of our content was based on purpose because we didn't have anything to talk about football. There wasn't even a San Francisco team playing in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So how do we make it, how do we make it relevant to the local community? By talking to them about things that they care about, yeah. Uh, and then, and then the other interesting thing that came out of the survey was around what what are the things that you know people, um, that brands um, think are, are which issues do brands think are best fit to address um, through sport, and mental health and well being came out very strongly, seventy percent, mm. gender gender equality fifty percent, racial equality forty nine percent. So, you know, th- those are some of the issues. Um, that that respondents felt sport was best place to address, but uh, we did see a difference uh, very interestingly f- based on geography. So what matters in North America is different to what matters in Europe to what matters in Asia, which is so complex that, for brands for global brands. That makes it more complex. Yep. Um, so there's a there's a case to be made for for purpose marketing lending itself better to more local activations and global activations, mm-hmm. unless you can find those kind of catch all issues. Um, you know, Procter and Gamble talks about their partnership with the IOC being the world's first citizenship led um, sponsorship. And they're trying to address general issues because there are some issues that are gen- general across everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a complex area. You need to have advice from people who understand what the issues are and can help you to navigate the space. Yeah. Um, and as I said earlier on, that those those your, the traditional agencies aren't always best placed to provide that advice. Has been yeah. my experience. No, no. And you guys work with. I mean, I know you're very selective on who you work with because you want people. You want to work with people who are convinced and com- committed. Um, I know you work with both sports organizations, brands, and athletes that we mentioned that are so important to. Uh, to the matter, to helping solve problems. Yeah, so we're, we're really ex- on the athlete front. We're really excited about a new athlete that we've just signed. He's a young American athlete called Ezra Freck. Oh, he's our a Olympian uh-huh. athlete. Um, most amazing young man. I mean, he's 17 years old and he's on a mission to to normalize disability. 
Yeah. Um, and he set himself a target for, you know, to win gold in Paris and to become the Michael Phelps of Paralympic sport uh, in the USA and to use that platform to normalize disability and, and provide all people with disability with access to participate in, in sport and to enjoy the benefits that flow from that. Um, so Ezra is an amazing kid. And, you know, and so for brands wanting to align around that issue, you know, athletes like him um, can be really powerful allies and platforms. Yeah, and when we speak about disability, it's 15% of the world population. So we, we're talking something big. <laughs> it's not... It's yeah. uh, it's a big impact. If you can make a small change, it's going to be a big impact. Uh, in this journey with 17 Sport, what has been the most challenging? Because being an entrepreneur first is challenging. We all know it. But especially when you innovate and you try to uh, bring a higher level of perspective in things. <laughs> so I think probably this, I, I mean, I've been at this for a while now. No? So it's like 20 years probably since I've been I started on this journey and probably the hardest thing is to be resilient and to keep going because I haven't always enjoyed the success that I've spoken about in the kind of latter part of that, of that story or that journey. Um, you know, when I, when I first started doing this work, um, I would say to people, we need to do this because it's the right thing to do. And people said, yeah, yeah, that's great, but I've got a business to run. Um, and when I look back on it now, I can't believe I was so naive, but it was only when I started talking to people through the business, the language of business, that they started to pay attention. Um, so that, that I think has been the most, was probably, probably one of the most difficult things. Um, so resilience to keep going. Um, the fact that you have to educate people means that your sales cycle is a lot longer than it is on a normal sales cycle. Um, those are probably the two things. Um, What's been the most pleasing out of it or the easiest out of it is to build an amazing team. I mean, the team that I work with now is without doubt the best team that I've worked in in my 30 years of, of doing sports marketing. And the reason for that is that they're driven by purpose. They come to work. They're part of 17 Sport. They want to be part of 17 Sport because we share this common mission of you know transforming sport into a force for good. Um, and that's made a huge, huge difference. Uh, it's not just a job for these these people. It's a, I mean, they're a young team, um, but the things they get done and the the amount of energy that they bring to work every day is just incredible. Yeah, last week I was having a coffee with an American woman living in Mexico, uh, who's who's working in sports for good, and I asked her, "Who's a reference? Seventeen sport." <laughs> So yeah, I can understand, and I know a lot of you, some of your team and they're amazing people. And as you said, very driven. They embrace the DNA of what you do. Mm -hmm. And so again, I carry that across to the sports property that you're running, you know, or the sponsorship team that you're running. If you can, if you can build something with purpose, you're going to get a whole level, different level of engagement um, yeah. from your internal team. And and the other big, the other big underutilized resource in the world is the, are the fans. I mean, imagine if we could find a way to activate the fans or to engage the fans in doing good alongside the sports properties, the teams, the athletes that they care about. Think about the human potential that sits amongst sports fans. If we could just find a way to activate that in service of good, we could solve any number of problems. Um, so that's that's part of our part of our ambition at 17 Sport is and, and everything we do now, it's around. You know, question number one, are we solving a problem? Question number two, are we engaging the fans and empowering the fans to play their part in helping to solve that problem alongside the properties, brands, athletes um, that we're working with? Because if we can figure that out, then I think we can get a lot done. The scaling effect would be massive. Mm -hmm. Great, great, great. So much learning. Before we close that conversation, um, I've got a small ritual at SIS Masters Podcast with a series of quick questions for quick answers. Ready? Is this a pass or fail thing? No, no failure. <laughs> <laughs> Only good answers. <laughs> Who is your favorite all-time athlete and why? Usain Bolt. Why is that? I just love his energy and I love the fact that he treats everybody as a human being irrespective of their rank in, in the world. Who is your favorite coach? Not an easy one. That's a good question. You can have a joker. 
<laughs> I'd probably say Rassi Erasmus, who's rugby. the coach of the Springbok rugby team, the current world champions. Uh-huh. Uh, declared bias, I'm a Springbok fan and have always been a Springbok fan. But I love the way that he gave Sia Khaleesi permission to um, basically use rugby as a platform to do part two of the rebuilding of a nation um, of South Africa around the last Rugby World Cup. Um, yeah, amazing. I'm reading the book at the moment, Khaleesi's book, and he talks about the relationship he has with Rassi, and um, that's a very special one. I mean, I don't know if you know, I'm supposed to give you a short answer. I'm giving you a long one again. No, no problem. Yeah, Khaleesi, for anybody who doesn't know his story, um, go, and, go and seek it out. He's got a book um, called Rise, and I think there's just a film that just came out on Netflix or something called Rise, which is about his life story. He came from nothing. He tells the story of having grown up in a poor, poor neighborhood in South Africa where he would go for days on end without food. Um, and rugby provided him with a way out. And he's has taken him to the pinnacle of his career, and he's now become a humanitarian that's using the sport of rugby to solve problems in the world. Wow. So what's your favorite event? My favorite event? Um, uh, probably the Olympics. Summer Olympics. Summer, not winter. <laughs> what is your favorite sound in a stadium? Um, the fans. Highlight, highlight of my one of the highlights of my sports career was going to a derby at um, Soweto Stadium in South Africa between Orlando Pirates and Kaiser Chiefs, and I experienced energy at a level that I've never experienced in my life before. The the noise from the crowd it was so intense that it was almost threatening. What is your favorite word? My favorite word, probably empathy. One great advice you have received or learned you would like to share. It's probably that it's naive to think that you can force your agenda on other people. Huh. <laughs> Zen, what is the solution? <laughs> Patience. Resilience. Resilience. Conviction. <laughs> what profession or source and use would you have liked to attempt or would you like to attempt? I always had this vision of, of uh, playing the drums in a rock band on a stage in front of a hundred thousand people that'd be cool <laughs> <laughs> that was an ex unexpected answer i love that one uh, you can still do it that's a good point about it <laughs> you can arrange it for me <laughs> i don't know if fabian's playing <laughs> i can't play drums so it's going to be going to be difficult all right <laughs> if you had one more hour every day what would you like to do with it spend it in nature Why did you move to Paris, my friend? What <laughs> <laughs> a job to do here. Yeah. I was going to say, I love nature. There's nature in Paris. That's it. I found it already. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And parks are beautiful. Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Get back down there. Your job's not finished. <laughs> That's a very good one. Neil, I thank you so much for your precious time to share with us at SIS Master Podcast. Again, I invite you all to check 17 Sport website if you want to know more about what Neil, Fabian, and the team is doing. Uh, great team and great work. Um, you mentioned the sales process is slow, but your growth has been very quick. <laughs> and so all the best to you, all the best to your team and in all your endeavors. And we'll be in touch very soon. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you all for listening to a new SIS Masters podcast. We'd love you to subscribe. Please leave a review or rate the podcast. It will help us improve. We'd love to see you in the next episode. Enjoy.